Hello, I'm James Foey. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and stories. Today, we're talking about Toy Story 4. Toy Story 4 is set in the world of the other Toy Story movies, which is a world where toys come alive as soon as humans turn their backs. This story picks up where Toy Story 3 left off, and the gang of toys that we followed through all three movies, led by Woody, the cowboy, and Buzz Lightyear, the spaceman, right? Yep. Have settled in with the new child, Bonnie, after watching their first one, Andy, go off to college. Of course, nothing is simple, and Woody must contend with his new place in Bonnie's life, all while going on a family road trip. Toy Story 4 is made by Pixar Animation Studios and is the fourth installment, as I'm sure you could have guessed. And I also read it is the final movie of the Toy Story franchise. It is directed by Josh Cooley, and the characters are voiced by Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Annie Potts, and Tony Hale, to name a few. I'm going to be discussing Pixar and making of the first Toy Story, because it's really what started off Pixar Studios and something I was very interested in. That'll be my production segment. And James, what are you going to talk about? Uh, I'll be talking about how Toy Story 4 relies on a feeling from the audience that a child's playtime is valuable to the point of being magical, that it is a setting ripe for themes of transformative love. Uh, these sentiments and storytelling tradition are born out of the Age of Enlightenment and may be fading away. Oh, that sounds very interesting and very deep, actually. Real fast, before you continue, I want to just say that this is a one-off episode. Lately, we've been doing our episodes two at a time, so we'll compare an older nerd topic with a newer nerd topic. But because it's summer and everyone has had summer sickness and summer schedules, you can see James is filling in for Kyle, who's away visiting family. We thought we would just do a little one-off episode before we start delving back into our two-parters. Mm, and be sure to ask Kyle about his terrible birthday bad luck <laughs> once he's finally back on the show. <laughs> I will. All right. Take it away, James. We have small models of people and animals from ancient Sumer, uh, dating back to 2600 B.C. We have the kite existing as a toy in China as Ooh. early as... Yeah, 1,000 B.C. Claire Talk can, about a toy that lasted. <laughs> yeah, Claire can see my notes, so she can enjoy all of this just a beat before. Um, the earliest reference to a toy in writing um, was a yo-yo from ancient Greece in 500 B.C., although the yo-yo is also probably from earlier <laughs> in China. They, they had everything first. Now, it's hard to tell if the early humanoid figures we found, these early dolls, are actually toys for children. Um, this gets into changing ideas about playtime um, in the Enlightenment that I'll be getting to. But a lot of early games were actually most likely for adults. And a lot of early dolls were actually most likely for religious purposes mm -hmm. and for instructional purposes. Now, that said, the British Museum and the Royal Ontario Museum both have dolls of Roman children uh, that were buried with the children. And these date back to between 200 and 300 Aww. A.D. Yes. Um, an ancient sadness. Uh, so one of the ways we can look at the transition where toys went from being something that were, or at least the dolls went from something that was instructional, and a lot of the toys that might be like small play versions of swords and bows and arrows 
where they were things that were actually to teach you how to be an adult. And we're just giving it to you in your size. And it's not so much a game as it is something to teach you a lesson, right? It going from that to something that was fun, you can see in the development of toy soldier models. Because in the Middle Ages, that's the first time that we have toy soldiers that aren't there to teach kids war tactics. They're there just because it's fun for the kids to play as if they're having a mock battle. Makes me think of the war games that we talked about in our D&D episode. Yes, war games from Germany for children and for adults <laughs> trying to conquer the world. Um, so this brings us into the changing attitudes of uh, adults towards children's playtime and what it was used for. And I think it might be fun for everyone to think to yourself as I talk about ideas about child rearing in the age of enlightenment. Was I raised by enlightened parents? I know for, the, for me, the answer is both yes and no. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about two writers of the time, uh, philosophers of the time, and uh, compare and contrast their ideas. Uh, you've probably heard of them before. One would be John Locke and his theory of, uh, I don't know how to say this, tabula rasa, which means uh, blank slate, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his book about raising a child called Emile. So... Uh, for John Locke, his idea was that children are a blank slate waiting to have an experience that they can transform into knowledge through the power of reason. Okay, uh, He doesn't want you to let uh, coddling prevent your child from having experiences, and he believes that what really makes playtime fun is liberty. He was a man who thought you're supposed to be very engaged in raising your child, but at the same time allow them a degree of freedom in the same way that he in government wanted limited government over the, mm. uh, the over the people. He wanted the parents not to dominate the child. But so the, no helicopter parenting. Not helicopter parenting. Well, it's, it's a mix because – uh, I think we would consider some of what he talks about to be helicopter parenting, but for the idea, but his idea at the time that children need space that is just theirs to experiment and play and to be free to do what they want to do to have fun is something of a revolutionary idea. Um, that, that that's essential to childhood. One of the things that we're looking at in both Rousseau and Locke is this idea that uh, childhood is its own very special place where there is supposed to be time set aside for a child to be a child and have fun in a way that is distinct from just being an adult. Uh, one of his big things is that uh, nurture is greater than nature. Um, he said of men, nine parts out of ten are what they are, good or evil, useful or not, by their education. Mm. So he's not necessarily a helicopter parent, um, but he does believe in taking a very active role. Both Rousseau and him do, just in, in different ways. Um, he believes in the idea that uh, you want to be loving to your children, that the best way to show them uh, how a person is supposed to be is by an example. Uh, he's not into corporal punishment. He's against it. He's not into even really strict punishments. He wants you to talk to your kid and reason with them and help them to understand what is right and what is wrong. Help them to develop their own conscience through your moral understanding being imparted to them. That's very modern. Even it's, I know that's very modern. It's very modern, but this is where it's born. And uh, he said instead of uh, corporal punishment, you should use praise and shame that your child cares what esteem you hold him or her in. <laughs> you know, so uh, you can use praise and you can use shaming. You know, if you're commending them for things, they're more likely to do it. And he says that's a powerful enough tool. Uh, he also believes that as far as reasoning with your children – 
He thinks that children understand reason as early as they understand language, even if they can't employ it themselves, even if they're not fully proficient in it. And he said, treat your kid like a man and he'll be a man sooner. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but he, he encouraged uh, talking to your children as um, on topics that they actually know about almost as equals. Mm. And anything that your child could be an expert on, even if it's something really simple, to ask their advice about which, it, like which, you respect them. Which is funny because he also advocated for giving time for them to be children, though. Yes, yes, to play and do whatever they would enjoy. But um, talk to them like a man. Yes, 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 if about something that they would know about, which really, you know, that's limited to a child's knowledge. Um, now, about Rousseau, who had uh, a similar viewpoint in, in the revolutionary idea of a child's freedom to play, uh, but at the same time had some very different ideas about the nature of man uh, overall. Jean-Jacques Rousseau believed Everything is good as it comes from the hands of the maker of the world, but degenerates once it gets into the hands of man. So he believes that children are born good and free of sin, but are corrupted by the world. Whereas John Locke said, hey, they're a blank slate. Although he also said, look, they're a blank slate, but if you don't do anything, they're going to tend towards laziness and vice mm. and these kinds of things. You have to guide them and help them reason away from it. Rousseau said, actually, no, human beings are essentially good. It's civilization that corrupts them. But what came first? I know. I some Reading about Rousseau, it was very interesting, but I kind of felt like he was an alien who didn't know human beings. But anyway, more about what he thinks. He thought, as opposed to Locke, who's like, reason with your children and teach them to reason. He said, children can't reason. And he also said, don't ask them to read. <laughs> teach it to them, but don't have them actually reading. You want to avoid even teaching them virtues. What you want to do is allow them to experience their environment naturally, to learn from those experiences on their own, and just steer them away from vices. They'll be good if you let them be good. And if mm. occasionally they strain to vices, just, hey, steer them away from them. Don't try to teach them virtues. You don't need to. It's in them. He believed children should learn by interacting with the natural world. Quote, love childhood. Look with friendly eyes on its games, its pleasures, its amiable dispositions. I think that's a pretty progressive idea of childhood. Yeah, for, I think know. it's a really lovely view of people and children. It is. I don't know if I agree with it, but I think it's lovely. It's very idealistic. Um, another quote, teach children to follow their natural inclination to be good rather than instilling habits. And he believed children should be left at play free of adult interference. And even though the adults aren't interfering, they should be watching so that you can see what your child is interested in and encourage them in those interests rather than trying to get them to learn about things they're not interested in. He said reason and things like reading books can come at age 12 <laughs> with a more complete child. Knowledge of things too soon can corrupt. And I have to, I mean, I keep my personal opinions out of this for a bit, but um, I think that is right. I think he he's pretty radical in his way of approaching it, but um, I think both Locke and Rousseau agreed that uh, there can be corrupting influences um, outside the home for your child that you have to be careful of. He believed that one of the ways, Rousseau believed one of the ways that can enter is books with knowledge that your child has no context for, uh, knowledge in words that they're not really prepared for because they have no um, actual experience of it. Ooh, I don't think he'd be a fan of video games. Oh, certainly not. Certainly not. Now, again, on, on an agreement that they have about things that can corrupt your children, both Locke and Rousseau uh, 
thought life outside the family was ripe for corruption. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rousseau uh, warned against the, quote, filthy morals of the town. <laughs> of society. Yeah, that's civilization. So now I'm going to transition to talking about some influential and popular stories about toys coming to life. And I want you to make the connection that they all have themes that are about the transformative power of love. And that I really believe this is born out of the Age of Enlightenment and these philosophers who thought that a child's playtime is a central part to building a child's virtue. I also think that you should note that the earliest story like this that I could find in writing, please let us know if you know earlier, was The Nutcracker and the Mouse King from 1816, written by E.T.A. Hoffman in Prussia. And I think it's notable that the first story I could find where a toy is coming to life and there's this imaginative, wonderful world that takes place with a child's toys. Is after the Age of Enlightenment? Yes. Yeah. So quickly on the Nutcracker and the Mouse King, uh, here's a plot summary for you. It's it's pretty interesting and intense, much more so than the ballet would let you know. Uh, so a young girl named Marie imagines a magical secret world of dolls and mice that takes place in her house. No one believes her, but she participates in an adventure in which she helps her Nutcracker-led toys in a fight against the evil mice army and in which she gets to visit the magical land of dolls. Um, So we have themes here of the value of a child's imagination, and we also have a theme of loving beyond physical beauty, Um, the the nature of love, the, the way of loving virtuously beyond things that will just pass with time. And as far as being transformative, there is a literal transformation where the Nutcracker, which is her godfather's nephew, is transformed back into a real boy and freed from the Mouse Queen's curse by Maria's willingness to love him no matter what he looks like. Pinocchio, written in 1883 by Carlo Collodi in Italy. Now, you know the story of Pinocchio, but you probably don't really know the story of Pinocchio. because <laughs> it's, it's not the Disney version. It is not the Disney version. Um, so it's about a wooden puppet child made by an old Italian man named Geppetto. The puppet rejects all love and good advice in favor of a good time in the company of those who don't really care for him. Uh, beyond that... <laughs> So we all know Jiminy Cricket is his conscience in the movie. The character of Jiminy Cricket, uh, who's called the talking cricket in in the book, is really his metaphorical conscience who advises him on how to be a good person. Pinocchio doesn't like his advice and murders him. He smashes him to death with a mallet. He brings tremendous suffering upon himself and his father Geppetto, even getting Geppetto jailed. But Geppetto still loves him. This makes me so sad. Oh, yes, it's very sad. Eventually, he dies from a hanging. That's the original end of the story of Pinocchio. A couple of criminals who, uh, the ghost of the cricket, (laughs) comes and tells Pinocchio, hey, don't hang out with those people. They're bad. And Pinocchio's like, you know what? I'm going to hang out with them despite you. (laughs) Those people end up robbing and hanging Pinocchio. and the uh, Pinocchio originally appeared as a series of short stories or uh, as an episodic series of stories in a magazine. And the editor of the magazine was like, hey, man, don't let that be the end of the story. Can you give me something else? Can you give me more? And so the author was like, fine. And then he wrote chapters 16 to 36, the majority of the book he never meant to write, in which Pinocchio hits rock bottom at the hanging, but then grows and learns as a person, even though he still messes up, but slowly gets better and eventually is a good and virtuous person. And the fair, his fairy 
who adopts him as her son, brings him to life. Oh, what about Geppetto? Oh, yeah, he takes care of Geppetto, too, even when Geppetto's sick. I do like that ending better. Yeah, don't we all? Um, Now, the reason this was written, the theme of this book, is because it was written as a refutation. You know, I kind of thought that when you were telling me the story. Yes, yes. yes. It is a refutation of the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau from the Enlightenment. His story, Emile, that I told you about that was was part essay, part novel— Even though it was so many years later, this was so upsetting to Carlo Collodi that he felt the need to write a fictional story saying, hey, you know what it would be like actually if you just let a kid learn from experience? Do you know what kids are actually like? They're not actually innately good. Pinocchio is a bad boy. Now, the last one I'm going to talk about was the first one I thought of for Toy Story, so it's it's part of the reason I'm finishing with it. It's from 1922. It is The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. It is about a little toy rabbit that wishes to become a real rabbit and is incredibly loved by a little boy. This love slowly changes the rabbit into a real rabbit, also with the help of a nursery magic fairy. (laughs) Which, once again, to even think that there is something like nursery magic has to be born out of the idea that playtime is this special, special thing. So there are lots of similarities to Toy Story and the Velveteen Rabbit, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, Loving your toy is what gives it life. Uh, We have older toys in the story who uh, are living on in the memory of the love bequeathed upon them um, by now grown adults, and they teach other toys about what it is to be a toy. Uh, We have toys that have relationships and cliques actually amongst each other, uh, but Besides those relationships among the toys, the child is the most important person to them. The more technologically advanced toys in the Velveteen Rabbit are proud of it and set themselves apart and talk about themselves as if they're real. And this can make the old-fashioned toys feel insecure, right? We all remember this from Toy Story. Um, Also, the rabbit is learning to love the boy as the boy loves him. And the role of the toy changes in the life of the child they love. And they have to grow and deal with this while still loving the child. And of course, the transformation here, eventually the Velveteen Rabbit gets to be a real rabbit. And that's not too much of a spoiler, folks. The full title of the Velveteen Rabbit is The Velveteen Rabbit, How Toys Become Real. (laughs) So it's right there in the title. The last thing I want to talk about is the modern era of toys and uh, why I think that uh, a story like Toy Story is actually a bit antiquated in the way that it looks at a child's playtime, or is becoming so. I learned about a term called age compression, which is slowly destroying the toy business. Uh, There's an article called Bored With Her Toys by Margaret Webb Pressler, written in the Washington Post back in 2006. So think about how much things have even gone further in this direction since then. In the article, she talks about how children are moving on from toys faster and faster. That's what age compression is. Uh, A sweet spot for toys is now three to seven years old. Barbie was originally made for seven- or eight-year-olds, but is actually only favored by three-year-olds. And the weird thing about this is three-year-olds don't even have the dexterity necessary to change her outfits. Yeah. Yeah, so it's created problems um, 
with what children want to move on to versus where they're actually at. Uh, electronic toys are considered cooler. This has been true since no- before 1922 when The Velveteen Rabbit was written. Still true now. You see it in Toy Story. Um, as far as age compression goes, it is actually affecting girls more than it affects boys. Boys play with toys generally until they're 12. This back in 2006. Girls play with them until they're 8. There was a study done where they asked children 9 to 11, boys and girls, if you go into a department store such as Target, would you go to the toy aisle? 92% of boys said they would go. 76% of girls said they would. And, of course, last year was big news. Toys R Us closed in the summer of 2018. It seems that although adults still look back on childhood as this wonderful time to play with your toys in this imaginative way and to have childhood be separate from adulthood, children want to move on from childhood faster and faster. And I think this is actually related to something that Rousseau talks about where he says why he doesn't want children reading too much when they're Mm -hmm. young is because it will corrupt them with information that they're not ready for and, and develop them in a way that's premature. Uh, And I think that you could argue that the Internet does that more effectively than a pile of books ever could. Hmm. So what does it say about the future generation? Uh, I think they might not remember childhood existing in the way that people did from the Age of Enlightenment. They won't have the attachment to toys like a Woody doll. I also think that um, Toy Story has Bonnie, who's the new child, very young on purpose. Because it makes sense that she would be playing with these dolls. But she is going to age out of them faster than Andy did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was really interesting, James, and very relevant to Toy Story. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about Pixar, the company that made these toys come to life. The company that would one day become Pixar was founded in 1974 when billionaire and then president of the New York Institute of Technology, Alexander Schur, was frustrated by how much time it took animators to, to turn the record album Tubby the Tuba into a movie. This was a project he had commissioned. He heard that the University of Utah was pioneering a new thing called computer graphics. Eventually, he went out there and found a computer scientist, Ed Catmull, and commissioned him to put together a team, a super team, to create Tubby the Tuba. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually end up making Tubby, but they did make some very impressive video art. So impressive that in comes Mr. Do you know who? Oh, uh, yes, I do, but only because of uh, watching your research. Steve Jobs. No. Oh. George Lucas. (laughs) (laughs) And this was right after the first Star Wars had come out, so he was pretty flush with money and, you know, The sense of possibility. Yes. (laughs) And he brought Catmull and his team over to California to work on computerized equipment to make special effects for his films. They were called the Graphics Group. Now, they weren't making films, which is what Catmull had always wanted to do, but because they were working with Lucas, they could hire the best people in the business. Everyone wanted to get in there. And through the 80s, Catmull went to computer graphic conferences to show off the work Graphics Group was doing. And it was at one of these that he met John Lasseter, who had worked on Tron, which was Disney's first and financially unsuccessful foray into computerized effects. In 1984, Lasseter went to Pixar to work for them for a month, and apparently he just never left. (laughs) 
and went on full time. And Lassiter comes with his own set of problems that I'm actually not going to go into in this segment, but he was very important in the formation of Pixar. Impossible to talk about the history of Pixar without mentioning John John Lasseter. Lasseter, yeah. Lucas eventually needed to sell the company, and I read because he needed money for his divorce settlement. And he toyed with selling them to General Motors and maybe a Dutch electronics company, which people who were working at Pixar at the time still recount how they lived in fear about what would happen to them. Would they have to go make technology for General Motors? Wow, George Lucas is getting divorced. I might lose my job. No, no, no. I just might not get to work in film anymore. Oh. But instead of going corporate, Lucas sold the graphics group to Steve Jobs. There, there it in is. comes your man, yes. And... Uh, 1986 for $10 million. Jobs had recently left or been forced out of Apple. Forced out. And he was looking for new projects to work on. Apparently, he was the one that insisted that the company make cartoons and movies since that had always been their ultimate goal. Jobs established the graphics group as an independent company called Pixar that was incorporated in California on February 3rd, 1986. And Jobs was their CEO till 2006. Uh, the first film made by, this was actually made by the graphics group, was The Adventures of Andre and Wally B, and a not completely finished version of it premiered in 1984. Now, what was especially notable about it was the computer animation they used, and it was groundbreaking for the time. It fi- featured the first use of motion blur and 3D animation and complex 3D backgrounds. It just hadn't been seen before. The first official Pixar movie was Luxo Jr. about the desk lamp Luxo Jr. who became Pixar's mascot. I've seen that movie. Yes. I'm sure you have too. It's you on YouTube. It's so cute. Lassiter, who directed Luxo Jr., worked constantly to get it done on time, sleeping at his office the whole nine yards. And his work paid off because Luxo Jr. was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Short Film. It was the first CGI film to get nominated for an Academy Award. And on top of that, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. Pretty good for, like, one of your first films. It is. That's a nice way to go. Right out of the gate. And the success, at least prestige-wise, continued. Pixar won its first Academy Award in 1988 for the short film Tin Toy for Best Animated Short Film. Also won the first Academy Award for software release with its program called RenderMan, which became the standard software in the film industry for rendering computer graphics. In 1991, Disney produced its first film outside Disney Studios. And this doesn't sound relevant, but it is. And it was called A Nightmare Before Christmas. It's a huge hit. We did an episode on it. It's excellent. You should listen to our episode and also watch the movie. Disney learned through that process that the risk of working with another studio was worth it. And John Lasseter said at the Toy Story 20th anniversary panel, because of Nightmare Before Christmas, Toy Story happened. Huh. In 1991, Pixar partnered with Disney in a $26 million deal and agreed to release and distribute three full-length computer-animated feature-length films. Now, this was a bit of a leap of faith on Disney's part because at the time— Pixar had only made short films and commercials. It was a big deal for Pixar because not only was it a huge opportunity for them to make a full-length animated film, but it was a chance for them to make huge strides in technology because the tech to make this kind of full-length film didn't exist. 
computer scientists at Pixar built software animators could use to design the film. And the goal was to allow the animators, who didn't have a huge engineering background, to control the characters that they were making. And because of the specificity of the computer animation, it it ended up allowing the animators to add details they wouldn't have been able to use before. And because this new tech looked best with geometric shapes, humans tended to look plastic in the beginning. Mm-hmm. They made a movie about plastic shapes coming to life, or Toy Story 1. It's fantastic. Limitations helping your creativity. Yeah, and at first they tried to avoid using humans altogether, but eventually they became too integral to the story, so they had to throw them in. But they're very fleeting, if you remember. Well, it's an Age of Enlightenment idea where you're letting your children be free and not dominating their playtime. Yes, exactly. That's, I'm sure that's what they were that thinking. It is, it is, I know. <laughs> um, and this technology also allowed for the stockpiling of digital characters, set, props, scenes that could be reproduced for sequels, TV shows, and video games. So you just kind of had the data there. Now, like I said, there was a lot writing on this. If this film failed, it probably meant the other two in the contract wouldn't happen. Uh, which would probably mean the closing of Pixar. And actually, Steve Jobs had to help fund them through the process while they were making this movie. Um, So they put everything they had into the film. And Ed Catmull, who I mentioned earlier, he was a software engineer on Toy Story and eventually became the president of Pixar, said that when making Toy Story that they were inspired by old Disney movies and pointed out, like we talked about in our Snow White episode, that Disney was using all the latest technology at the time. So they were kind of doing the same thing, trying to use the latest technology to make a film. The team at Pixar didn't want to make a princess movie, which was big at the time. Toy Story came out the same year Pocahontas did. And they didn't want some flawless protagonist and a bad villain. John Lasseter has cited Aladdin as a boring protagonist, which is funny to me because when I think of like the protagonist at the time in the 90s, Aladdin was actually one of the most interesting protagonists. They wanted their main characters to be the most interesting characters in the film, which is true of most Disney animation from the 90s, that the villain tends to be the most interesting character. Wow. Um, I'm saying, okay, that's a true thing. We don't want that to be true about us. Yes. And the idea was that if Buzz and Woody were trapped in an elevator, they would be so interesting that the audience would be happy to watch them for 70 minutes. So even though Pixar was a tech company, they made a point to put the story first very early on. And this was actually another Disney lesson, except from the movies that came out after Disney died. Because with Disney no longer the head of the studio, art started becoming prioritized over the story. And they felt that the films from that period just didn't hold up as well. And they felt that movies that relied on tech over story just didn't hold up over time. They looked to movies that, despite their tech being outdated, were still loved, like The Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, and Snow White. And the thing is, they didn't necessarily have to focus on the story. They got the contract with Disney because they were an impressive tech company. But they did. And it paid off. It's so great to hear about a tech company thinking, wait, this is how stories last. This is how art yeah. lasts. It's not about technology. Yeah. That's just a ser- that's a tool in service mm-hmm. of. Yeah. And they had, I mean, John Lasseter was an animator. Right. They had creative people with them. And they themselves are creative people. But I do think it's really interesting and a really great way to look at making a movie. 
1995, the first Toy Story was released, and it made $192 million in the U.S. and $356 million worldwide. And Jobs said it would break even, even if it made, 70, if it made $75 million. So it made more than double that. Um, and Pixar went on to make more movies and fulfill that contract. And after many very successful collaborations, Disney bought Pixar for $7.4 billion. Now compare that to the $10 million Steve Jobs bought it for in the 80s. It has gone on to win 15 Academy Awards and continues to be lauded as one of the best in the animation business. We're basically at the forefront of it. Uh, the two other Toy Stories have also done very well. Uh, number two made $246 million in the U.S. and half a billion worldwide. Number three made $415 million in the U.S. and $1 billion worldwide. Wait, which one made a billion? Three. Yeah, it, it, earned, I mean, it earned it. It's great. <laughs> um, and I want to talk, I want to end my segment by talking about the fourth movie because that is technically what we're talking about, though I feel like we're really just covering the Toy Story franchise and the ideas behind it. Because for those of you who know the series, and I assume you do if you're listening, uh, Toy Story 3, especially to me, felt like it ended so perfectly in a way that wrapped up the character's journey so well. And when I saw that the fourth one was coming out, I almost didn't want to see it. I was disappointed. When I heard it announced, I was disappointed. Yeah, like, do you need a fourth one? Now, why did they make it? And I'm sure that there is pressure on Pixar to continue to make money even though they're owned by Disney. (laughs) Um, And sequels have a built-in audience, so they tend to do well. But here's the thing. I was thinking about it. Pixar is so successful that I don't think they need to make anything they don't want to. I don't think there's really an overlord being like, you must make the next Toy Story because your movies aren't making enough money. I don't want to. Here's the thing. I want to agree with almost anything you're going to say. I do think Cars 2 was about selling more toy cars. And that is a valid point. And I haven't seen any of the Cars movies. And those are just one of, like, the three Pixar movies I haven't seen. They're not as well-reviewed. They're not. They're not. But they keep coming out because, you know, money is a a powerful— I I, I don't think that Toy Story toys sell that well. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't think they do. I think the tickets do, though. Yes. Well, that was just my thought on it. Um, But the director of Toy Story 4, Josh Cooley, said he understands why people are asking this question and expected it. And that he and his team at Pixar felt that there was more that needed to be told to complete Woody, the main character voiced by Tom Hanks's arc. And that every Toy Story movie deals with a new challenge for the characters. And I want to end uh, my segment with this quote from a Washington Post article where he talks about it. And the article is called, "What makes, uh, Why Make Toy Story 4 After a Satisfying Trilogy? Here's how the director found his inspiring answer by Michael Kavna. Toy Story 4 then tackles the challenge of being in a new environment with a new child and finding your next sense of purpose. This movie is about second chances and learning to let go of the past, which is hard for Woody. That seemed like a human truth, so it felt like a movie worth making. Yeah, I was bringing up Cars 2, but I actually, (laughs) I agree with making Toy Story 4 having seen Toy Story 4. And I think they were right. There was full artistic merit in making that sequel. So now we are at our opinion segment. And James, are you a fan of Toy Story 4? I am. I I think I just gave it away already, but um, I enjoyed it greatly. I did too. And it assuaged all of my fears about 
whether Toy Story 4 needed to happen. Did we need the fourth movie? Yes, apparently we did. That emotional journey was very much needed. Yes. And And it is part of a larger arc. It actually fits into what, you know, a lot of humans go through over the course of their life. It relates directly to that experience through the eyes of a toy. Now, did you enjoy it more now that you've done this research? Or should I say, did the research enhance your previous viewing of it? It did, but it actually, it um, it makes it a little more bittersweet. Uh, the more I was preparing for my uh, segment and the more I thought about um, how the toy industry has changed and the way that uh, Russo wanted to protect kids from all kinds of information and uh, ideas that they weren't ready for yet. And I think about the internet, it just, oh, and the way that that experience that we're seeing in the movie is something that is almost of a bygone era, you right. know, or only for kids that young, only for kids so right. little. Um, I actually thought when watching this movie that they purposely left electronics out. Yeah. Like um, there is a GPS in the film, but that there's no phones or video games or anything like that. And that had to be on purpose. And I, I think Bonnie is so young right, to make it all that plausible. Well, then you think, too, like um, John Lasseter, didn't he? He based uh, Woody and um, and Buzz on two different toys that he had, right? Oh, I didn't read about that. But yeah. Maybe. That makes sense. Yeah. And Woody wasn't a cowboy, but I think he was like a Casper toy that he had. And then there was um, maybe it was a G.I. Joe or something. Mm. And uh, they made it a spaceman and all that to be more... Um, Current. Yeah, especially on the technology front to make it look like, oh, yeah, the new thing um, for Buzz Lightyear. But still, the idea of those two kinds of toys, would somebody in the cre- with the creative power and the position that John Lasseter had, um, who grew up as a kid who's growing up today, you know, let's say 20, 30 years from now, would they even think to make a story about toys as if toys are that important as yeah. if they held that kind of emotional significance and that kind of made me sad um but i well your research made me sadder and sadder as i was listening to it because a the toy story films do make me sad in general because they're nostalgic for toys and like the love that like your imaginary toys had for you and oh my gosh I loved them, and so there's always that with it, too. But then the idea that this is just being lost, you know, and that there's this, you know, the, the age of play is disappearing. Right, and, of imagination, of playing yeah, in an imaginative way. Which was so um, special to me. Um, and I, I, people who are older than me probably think that I lost a lot of that age of imagination as well. Um, so to, it's even crazier that the younger generation is losing more. Yeah, yeah, in favor of lights on a screen, which is the same thing that gamblers love about slot machines in part. Yeah. Do you think that people should read uh, Locke and Rousseau before they see Toy Story? (laughs) I think you should read them on your own just so you can then savagely attack me for how poor my summary of their ideas on child rearing was. Um, We had limited time here, folks. (laughs) But... Uh, I I think their ideas are very interesting. And even if I think Rousseau sounds like a well-intentioned alien who descended upon France and thought people were better than they are in any real human experience, um, (laughs) I still think uh, he's worth reading and his ideas are worth reading and the things he thought about what could corrupt a child are still uh, worth thinking about in the age of the Internet. Yeah. 
Yeah. I still enjoyed Toy Story a lot, and I still think that, um, you know, they were talking about things trying to be timeless. Mm -hmm. I think that the themes are still timeless there. I think even if you didn't grow up with toys like that, you could still appreciate it. Yeah, it's funny. I wonder how kids, uh, this kids who see the movie now feel about the movies and what their experience is with them. Because for me, it all feels very nostalgic. Um, and when I was a kid and first saw Toy Story 1, it was relatable like because I played with toys at that age. But I wonder, I would be very curious to talk to kids who see it in theaters and like, how how do you feel about it? I'm sure you're not getting the emotional experience I am, but like, do you relate to Bonnie? Yeah. Well, what? How do how do you relate to it? What were your favorite toys that like helped you make that connection when you were watching it, not as an adult? I I mean, all the toys. I I think like you had your stuffed animals on your bed and like your Barbies. And for me, I don't know if you had Barbies. And I think I had everything. I had a <laughs> lot of dolls too. Yeah. Yeah, but like the experience of that these toys are watching me grow up. You know, that relates. Yeah, yeah. And the way that you, those, um, I think you might have said this, the, those pretend relationships and how much you loved them. Yeah. Um, that's part of what's so sweet. Also, also, we're talking about reading Rousseau or Locke. Read The Velveteen Rabbit, everybody. I don't know if you need to read classic Pinocchio <laughs> to read about a little brat suffering the way he ought to. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, The Velveteen Rabbit, like one of the things in it is like the, the, the rabbit's nose is changing because the boy is kissing it so much he's wearing it away. Aww. Yeah, yeah. And the whole idea of what it is to be loved and how you have to be uh, a certain way. You can't be too fragile to become real. It's hard for China dolls and things like that to become real because they break so easy. And you can't be too sharp like these mechanical toys because they're hard to, to love too. Yeah. Because you can't cuddle them so easy. Also, lots of respect to Pixar. Um, obviously, they are on top of their game. But especially reading about their process and how they were tech people that decided that the story came first. It, I don't know, it was refreshing because I feel like so much of Hollywood... Um, and Kyle and I have talked about this a lot with especially fantasy movies has been like make more money and people will come because it's fantasy. But that they actually created like that the story was so important to them. And it it really is the reason that their studio does so well. Right. Not relying just on the genre or just on your name that you have to find a, a kernel of an idea that is worth sharing with the world before you can make it. Not the the premise is like, oh, this is. Uh, something that people can emotionally connect to, not right. just making, something that will entertain them. And Yeah, know. and prioritizing it. Like, yeah. not just like, oh, this is a good story, but like, let's really make this story good. The dialogue is excellent in Toy Story. And there's so much bad dialogue out there. Oh, my goodness. Not that there. I could write great dialogue. I don't take credit for that. But I feel like <laughs> that, like, a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows, the dialogue is horrible. <laughs> Yeah, and they're trying to make a good thing. I mean, one of the things about Pixar, and it's always in, in, it is important to remember, we talk about things being just like, oh, this is this plot is actually a cash grab. They don't love it. There is a lot of art that is made with a great deal of love and care that isn't any good. It's one of the, the sad things about trying to make something artistic. Most people, when they make something, don't want it to be bad or just mediocre. They're not satisfied with that. It's just how it came out, which is why it's so impressive that Pixar not only cares, but that they're able to execute, that they're able to achieve it. 
Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm James Foey. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show's social media account and all of our social media accounts at our website, dsrapodcast.com. And you can learn more about Toy Story 4 on our Facebook page. I'm the producer, James Foey, and if I were a toy, I'd like to think I'd be a quality video game like Metal Gear Solid. Our logo is done by Patty Hyland, who I think would be something like a She-Ra action figure. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who I think is probably just an extremely well-painted Dungeons & Dragons miniature, or maybe a whole craft set to make your own. Yeah, a very talented man. This is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.